Hey everybody, it is episode 33 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris joining you with Steve as always. Hey Steve. Hello podcast world. We are super excited to have our guest today, Kevin Leahy. He is the husband of a rogue runner and actually a non-runner himself, but is going to be bringing the non-runner perspective to this conversation. We're actually going to be talking about the alchemy of coaching and debating whether or not running is magic or science, essentially, as we go into this. And it's going to be fascinating because this is probably the first podcast where I have no clue where we're going to end up, Steve. <laughs> but I, 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 uh, I unfortunately do. <laughs> I've had, uh, Kevin's a good friend of mine, and he and I have had many, um, many long conversations, some uh, beer-induced, others uh, actually focusing clearly on the method that, that Kevin uses to help people break through barriers and things. So I have been um, subjected to some of <laughs> what we'll be subjected to today. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, amazing things have come from it. So Kevin is part-time lawyer, full-time philosopher. So <laughs> we're going to be getting into some philosophical stuff, but talking about running and magic and how much is science versus magic. So it's going to be interesting. We'll get to that in a second. As we usually do, we're going to start with a few current events before we dive in with Kevin. First, I want to talk about the latest situation with Dathan Ritzenhine, who we just found out is, has signed to run with Brooks Hansons. And Dathan was a longtime Nike athlete, lost his contract there, which was a, probably a combination of performance and a combination of him not wanting to play the Oregon Project games as as the shroud of doubt came over that group. And so he had moved back to Michigan where he grew up, actually went to high school with Norga Colligan, who runs with us, and now is training with Brooks and the Hansons, Hanson brothers there, which I think is, is a really interesting pickup for them. It's a great pickup for them, obviously, because I think Dathan still has some talent, or at least we know he has talent, but he still has some results to, to go after. But what do you think about this move, Steve? I, I think it's a win for both parties. I think Dathan <laughs> needs guidance. We, he did run well sort of doing his own thing. I think he went back to his high school coach. I don't really exactly know who was coaching him over the last window. He did have some really good results, but I think that he needs, he seems to be the per, a kind of athlete that needs um, help, guidance, and someone, I like, as we like to talk about, giving somebody a good start line experience I think when you think about your own training so much and wonder if you're doing appropriate work, it's hard to do all the other little things that are essential to running at your best. So I really think that he's going to benefit greatly. And the Hansons has, while they've had Desi um, on the women's side or in their whole organization running at an incredibly high level, um, they, they haven't in recent years, in fact, really in the last eight to 10 years, had um, a significant male performer at a really, really high level. So I think it's fantastic to highlight the kind of coaching that the Hansons do, the quality of coaches they are. And again, they're one of the few groups in the country um, that's marathon centric. So him going to that group just makes perfect sense. And I think we're going to see some great results. I, I, it, to me, it says, I look at Dathan as definitely being a contender in 2020 and he'll be a, he'll be a little long on the tooth at that point. Uh, I hope so. I mean, he's a guy who's former five, 5k record holder for the U S has many, many U S championships at the cross country level, 5k, 10k level. He's an Olympian. 
although just missed the Olympics in the fourth spot in 2012 and DNF'd at the trials in 2016. So the last two Olympic cycles have not been so, so kind to him. He is a 207 and change marathoner, but has always struggled a little bit with fueling in the marathon. So I think the Hansons group will help him hopefully figure that out. And I would love to see him running well again. You know, he's a guy that is now 34. So he's really not that old. You no, know, he's, he's been got- around the scene for a long time because he's been a precocious performer since since high school days but well we've seen i mean we had you know vabdi who's run in his 40s at a really high level at meb. the marathon distance you have meb who's run at a really high level in his in his 40s at the marathon so i think that he's got um and you know he gets unfairly pigeonholed as an in, as an injury prone, prone athlete and i think really what happened when he was training with his alazar is that too much experimentation was going on and not enough just aerobic development and working on the key parts of the late race that need that race lace late race dramatics that happen no, to, for everyone in the late in the end of the marathon and i think kevin and 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 keith will be able to really help him highlight what's going on over those last six miles and their training will be targeted not towards changing mechanics but more along the lines of focusing on being ready for the what's going to happen so we'll see but that's an interesting move and i hope the best for both dathan and for that group because they they are one as they've proven with desi and brian Stell before her that are doing it the right way just by blue collar getting out there getting it done doing the miles and so hopefully great success comes to both of them Speaking of the marathon, we've got to talk about Nick Simmons because uh, he's you know just ran his last 800 at the USA Champs. And coming out of that, I watched his post, post-final 800 interview. He was already talking about his next race because he said he needed another goal. And it was not the 800, but he has signed up for the Honolulu Marathon in December. It was clearly, you know, he's a guy who's always thinking about the marketing angles of everything. It was clearly a run gum, which is his business promotional opportunity because he suddenly had this run gun, run gum Honolulu marathon entry available for those that were going to register for the, for the contest to win that. But he's going to be doing the marathon in December. What do you think? Is this silly promo stuff or is this something that's interesting? it's painfully obvious it's silly promo stuff. Um, Nick is a relatively low volume 800 meter runner. I mean, he did run like 60 miles a week, I believe, or 70 at occasion, but he's definitely lower volume and he's not built for it. He's not built for it physiologically. He's not built for it psychologically. He has no idea what he's getting ready to deal with. I predict either it'll just be you know, wave at the crowds, kissing babies, or he won't make it there if he truly trains for it because he'll get IT band syndrome. He'll have some planner issues. He'll, I mean, I don't know what his long run is, but my, I doubt it was ever further than 15 or 16 miles. So he, he's got a whole world of hurt coming towards him. But I do know one thing about Nick Simmons. He's smart as a whip. So yeah. he knows that he knows what he's doing. I'm sure he has a respect enough for the sport. And I think in any other case I might not be as I would be more dismissive, except I know Nick isn't stupid. So he he knows what he's doing and he knows he's going to suffer and he knows it's going to be painful. And so therefore I tip my hat to him and say go for it. 
I my one suggestion to him as a coach: don't train too hard. Uh, <laughs> less is more in his case. Get to the start line. Healthy. Get to the start line healthy. You're going to suffer no matter what. You may be walking no matter what. Sub three would be a great result for him, in my opinion. Right. Um. I don't know if he could run sub. Like a two forty to two forty five, even if he trained to the best of his ability, given the differences. I mean, I know he's tough enough. We do know Nick is tough, so yep. the things that he'll be asked to do at the end of it, at the end of the race, will he'll be able to manage. But it's so different from the eight hundred. The pain is just so different. So we'll see. <laughs> you know, the eight hundred being the what the most painful track race. Potentially, well, I've, I mean, so it is kind of interesting to compare the two. Well, I've argued this many this case many times. I usually use the five k as an example, but I always say the five k and the marathon are the same race, just on a different scale. And I also a lot of times say that the eight hundred and the five k are very similar races, just on a different scale. So I guess if you put if you're using true logic, then you'd <laughs> say the eight hundred and the marathon are similar. The scale is just so much different. Yeah. <laughs> so I do think the scale will be an issue for him, <laughs> absolutely. But he knows. You know it, what he felt. What he felt over the last 150 meters of every 800 he's ever run, um, he will unfortunately be feeling for probably 15 miles. <laughs> so the scale from 150 meters to 15 miles is a bit different. From here's, I think it'll be a kissing babies experience. I think he's gonna focus on getting to the start line healthy and then try to just cruise in the race and enjoy it and. Kind of and if he does that, he'll get the res- I think he'll get so much respect for doing that. If he really tries to go for it, and I think this is where he's smart enough to, is that right. he just won't try because to try and fail would be a bigger distraction from what he's really trying to achieve, which is to bring awareness to his, to his product. And you know what? Hey, and to he- the sport, though. That's where I got to give him some credit because he is somebody who's super smart from a marketing perspective. He's doing video blogs. Not daily, but every other day, if you follow him on Facebook, kind of following his journey now, training up to the marathon. So I got to give him credit for that because even though it is a little bit of a marketing stunt, it is hopefully going to draw people to the sport or at least get attention for the sport. So I got to give him credit for that. And even if I find it maybe a little bit cheesy and overdone, you know, a little a little bit of PR like that is probably, or I would, you know, we need more PR like that probably in our sport. So I'm going to give it a pass. I also think he'll be making our point for us. Which is what? That the marathon always <laughs> marathon wins. Marathon always wins. <laughs> well, I think that's a good segue <laughs> to our discussion with Mr. Kevin Leahy. Kevin, as I mentioned, is the husband of Corey Leahy. He trains with Rogue Soul Survivors, coached by Bobby Garcia. He's been witness to our training methodology for a long time, always comes to rogue parties, has interacted with our group significantly. So he's sort of been an observer from the outside for a very long time and has someone who's watched him operate at these parties. He actually quite quite enjoys this sort of view. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he does. This view from the the fly on the wall view of rogue and and all of its machinations from not only the running and training but also the partying as well so welcome kevin Thank good you. to have Thank you. you great to be here guys we're super excited to have you on as i said he's a lawyer by by training but really a philosopher is is his real life's calling and i i can't really count the number of times i've ended up in a philosophical discussion with kevin at one of 
Coach Bobby's party. So always a good time. But we thought we'd bring him on and just see what would happen. But with that, Kevin. Fantastic. I'm going to throw it to you. Tee this conversation up for us because this is a debate and conversation that you've been having with Steve for a long time. You bet. So um, thanks. And hello, all of you out there. Uh, So the situation is coaching. And and Steve and I have talked a lot about that. That's where we do have a very common uh, bond and interest. I, I coach individuals often. It's called executive coaching. But the idea is coaching somebody for performance. If you're good now, why aren't you better tomorrow? And Steve and I have gotten into some pretty nifty, complex conversations. So that's what we wanted to bring to bear here. I want to let you all know it's going to be in four parts to follow along. The first part, which I'm going to um, kick off with a question real quick, is what are the raw ingredients needed to be a successful runner? To be a a runner, and by success, I'd like to hear your all's definition so we can kind of kick that off. But what are the raw ingredients? That's the first thing I'd like us to talk about and review. And then I'd like to talk about the science of running. That's been one of the, as Chris pointed out, one of the most fascinating things. What, what is Rogue doing that somebody who doesn't have um, the bandwidth to go out and get a coach is not getting? What is the science behind what y'all do? And then the next thing is magic, something Steve and I have talked quite a bit about. We're pretty excited to, to kind of delve into that. And then lastly, uh, and maybe all along, we're going to point to it, results. Uh, if you're out there listening, I anticipate, and if you're running, you are wanting results. You are wanting to get a PR. You are wanting to finish your first marathon. You are wanting to feel good about this sport. And I think that's what we're really doing here today is talking about how to feel good about the sport um, and how to use the right assets and leverage uh, great coaching, great facility, great, frankly, teammates, as I know, to get those results. Hey, let's kick off success. I'd like to, I'll just kind of point to one or the other and then let it go. But Chris, I'd like to get you first on the idea of what is success as a runner? What, what does that mean to you as a coach, not so much to you as a runner? And I know there's the distinction. Sure. So, well, success as a coach for me is helping my athletes achieve their goals. Perfect. That to me is fairly straightforward as a coach, but the big challenge with that is helping the athlete figure out what their goal is or what their goal should be so that can be trickier especially when you know especially when you get to know someone initially you don't necessarily have a window into their soul yet and a lot of times if you ask somebody that question what's your goal then they'll spout out something that they think you want to hear or that they think others want to hear or they'll kind of take someone else's goal and co-opt it as their own because they think that's what should be important to them and so for me, it takes some time to feel out that person and really understand if what they're telling me initially as their goal is really what they want. And we've talked about it before on here, which is, you know, as a runner, you need to understand your purpose first before you can talk about your goals or set goals. Because if you don't understand why you're doing it, then you don't know what's important to you. And it's interesting. You know, I've, I've had several one-on-one conversations this week and last with my athletes because we're kind of in that window of trying to understand what they want to do for their full races. And I have a lot of new people in my group. And so I'm sitting down for the first time largely with one-on-one conversations with a lot of these people. And it's fascinating to me because, you know, I've had probably half of those conversations with new athletes where I walked away thinking that their goal isn't what they told me. Yeah. That's a really, but I didn't have enough time with them 
yet <laughs> to really dig to what it is. And then so, half of them, I'm like, okay, I think I have a pretty good sense. Or maybe we got there in the conversation where they said one thing and I kind of pushed them to a new place because yeah. I had gotten a little more transparent <laughs> view of their, of their purpose. So let's hold, let, let's hold you off there. Yeah. You are on a roll and I didn't re- necessarily want to interrupt in case somebody listening really wanted to catch that. But here we are ingredients and you're, you're giving us the whole story. So <laughs> let's focus a little bit on ingredients. The reason I wanted success and Steve, I'm going to uh, focus on your definition. So Chris, let's go back to your definition. It was uh, getting, getting the achievement th- that the uh, runner is looking for, essentially. Right. Just nailing it. And then, Steve, what would you, you know, focus on as success as a coach? Uh, what's the definition of success with respect to the runners you're coaching? <clears throat> Mine's changed over time, for sure. Nice. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've always been a cut cut people's heads off and shit down their throats kind of coach <laughs> where I want results. I've heard about it. <laughs> I want results and I want results and I want results. But I've come to realize over the last, I don't know, probably four to five years, um, having worked with really fast athletes, that that really wasn't my goal. My goal really is transcendence. It's ask, watching a human being transcend what they thought they were capable of and doing more. Um, and sometimes that happens through success, through the actual physical reaching the goal, the result. Sometimes that's, um, it's through the failure. They, they get clearer. Um, to me, I just use the goal now as a method of trying to find where they are in the continuum of likelihood for some huge personal breakthrough. I don't get my result, my success, my vision of success. I don't get it very often. Um, and I don't. It doesn't always play out philosophically, though I'm you don't framing get it, it that way. You don't for yourself or for your coach or you as coach? I don't see the result in the athlete that I'm trying so hard to get. So I'm trying to help them transcend the banal, the, <laughs> the everyday. Now you're skipping into magic. Okay, so, let, me, but, let me summarize. Okay. What do you got? You got no, a but. But I also know that they'll see it on a pretty strict guy they'll see the result and know that that was a success a success or a failure i will only i will necessarily know that there was that i occasionally get a real meta experience with my athlete but not very often okay so let's tidy this up so but that's st- why i do it we're, we're focused on ingredients and i wanted to get that out of the out of the gate the idea of success because obviously it's sometimes better to understand your end and focus so that you can understand what the ingredients are to get there. So both of you have described, I mean, Chris, I, I heard achievement, and then I heard you deepen your discussion and understanding of it. It was very cool. And then that started to get into the idea of we don't even, we don't technically know as the coachee, as the person being coached, what is achievement? And that's why that, you know, the alchemy of coaching to me is that bringing together of two people to solve one problem. It's pretty darn exciting. And then Steve, I forwarded to you, and you indicated, which I'm sure Chris would agree, there's a lot of different viewpoints of what success is in, in any endeavor. Running, I've seen it over 10 years. Sometimes it's a PR. Sometimes it's just team, teamwork with great friends running in the morning. Sometimes it's just getting up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I heard true. about success and fail, and I heard that. So let's now delve in. Either one chime in. I'd like you to chop quicker this time what the ingredients are so i want to hear kind of one ingredient from steve one from chris let's go like a tennis match steve you go what's an ingredient uh commitment commitment 
What do you got, Chris? Physical training. Physical training commitment. What do you got, Steve? Uh, coachability. Ability to listen and to be in, in tune with allowing the, the, the coach to, do their, to, to fulfill their role. Nice. What do you got, Chris? Focus. Focus. Ability to suffer. Suffer. This is interesting. Well, you need a team. team. Accountability. Accountability. You snuck in too. <laughs> They're related. <laughs> um, I would say uh, staying injury free. Yeah. Health. Health. Let's see. Motivation. Yeah. Motivation. Um, an end. A, an, an, an athlete needs to see an end to it. Uh, for example, not going to go too far in examples, but so many are process driven initially um, and you almost have to push them out of process, get them into end result so that you can get back to process. Yeah. So it's nice to see um, them go for an end and then, and then you can work through. And let me test, uh, uh, let me twist this question about ingredients now and t ask you, Chris, when you first meet a new coaching client, running client, mm -hmm. what are you understanding are the ingredients that person needs? Like, are you going through a checklist? Are you taking a holistic view? Are you breaking it down? Who is this person and what are they capable of? What, what ingredients have they brought to this, this so, coaching engagement? So those conversations for me start with some version of purpose, at least as they can artic articulate it, which kind of gets to the motivation point. I want to understand why they're doing it. Why did you come to me? What's your history with the sport and why do you continue to do it? And in their answering that why, they give you some of the ingredients they come to you with? Yeah, because then for me, I can understand what, where they're coming from, their perspective. You know, as I've talked about before on this podcast, I coach the individual. And if you don't understand the individual perspective, then you can't help them achieve those goals that we talked about. So that's where I start is why are you here? Yeah, where do you start, Steve? <clears throat> I start by ignoring and I start by uh trying to figure out how much how full of shit they are. Help us understand the ignore uh part of that component. So I, I it's it's well known that to be a member of my group you pretty much have to go through a two week where I say to you, talk to the people on the team, don't talk to me. If you've got a major issue, if you've got a major thing, I don't want to be responsible for an injury or you suddenly ramping your mileage up by a 300% in a short window. But I like my athletes to help my new athlete figure out where they are because I, don't, I know they're not trustworthy. The athlete doesn't understand that they're not trustworthy at that point. And, and so my own athletes, their interaction with my athletes allows me to see where they are on that continuum of bullshit. And we're getting nods from Chris and laughter. I don't know if it's well, laughter I'm laughing because he, he uses me. <laughs> this is where me running in the group is. I have other assistants. You are my key assistant, but I do have multiple I'm one assistants. Of many assistants that he kind of gets to assimilate. <laughs> the fifth column of Steve Sisson <laughs> coaching. Okay. So let's think about that though. Cause it's really interesting. If I'm a, if I'm a runner and I'm getting coached, and I'm starting to hear on this podcast that actually I don't even know my ingredients. Is that what we're saying? Or help us, help me understand this a little bit more. Does I, the runner themselves know the ingredients they come with? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think they think they know. I mean, and, and <laughs> that, sometimes, I would agree. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes maybe they have 
a clue about a few things, but I think largely they're coming to us because they recognize that they don't know and they need help. You know, it, it's the athlete that shows up thinking they know tends to not stay very long because they want to do it their way. I think this Ooh, is can also... You, can you say that again? That was a really good point. <laughs> well, the athlete that thinks they know doesn't stay very long because they think, you know, they think that they have, the, they have it all figured out so they don't need us. And so by the time they get to us, usually they're fairly malleable. And, and this is part of the reason why Steve ignores them initially is because he wants to sort out the real from the fake, you know, the ones that are going to stick around and recognize that this is the place where they can learn versus the ones that are going to fade away after two weeks because... So I want Steve to go now because uh, uh, you got a thought on that. Well, yeah, I do. I think it's really important I just, just so that people don't think that Rogue is about putting people into deep water and letting them sink. Team Rogue is the highest level of of the grouping we have at Rogue. So uh, Chris coaches athletes at a much more beginner level. My, the athletes that come to me are at a more advanced level. And so that ignoring is not, is not dangerous. No, um, it, it could be dangerous to the relationship, but it's not dangerous to the athlete. I just want to make that clear. Sure. And as a matter of fact, let's now list, and if you want, use examples. Don't name names per se, but well, use examples of, well, I'm going to go on this one. People, the, the, you know, most of the listeners maybe aren't at the elite level, but they're listening because they want to know what their ingredients are. Help us focus in on this again. Now, we already listed them kind of in broad terms, but go over some people who you felt like if you reflect, you had a situation where they didn't seem to know the ingredients they, they brought to you and you all tapped in on it and then they had amazing success because you helped them understand the raw stuff they have. So I'll give a good example. So this athlete came to me, it would be about three years ago now. He had run Boston Half Marathon in about two hours and he said, he wanted to do a fall half marathon. And this was, he came to me in, in March or April. He said, I'm doing a race in October and I want to beat my time from Austin. I want to run faster than two hours. And so I said, okay, great. You know, but I was meeting this, this gentleman for the first time and, you know, asked him the questions I usually ask. Like I mentioned, why are you doing this? What do you want from it? What has your training been like? So I know where his starting point was. And usually in those situations, you know, people want to jump to a goal and say, okay, I want to, I want to be, I want to break two hours. I want to hang my hat on that. And I usually tell them why let's just wait, you know, let's figure out once we add this new process to your training, let's wait and see where you end up. And so with him, he was stubborn. And so we had to work through some stubbornness, but willing to do what I told him to do. And so once I got him focused on the process, which for him meant slowing down a little bit, probably a lot, being consistent, doing all the work you know associated with our training, and then layering in sort of the speed stuff he hadn't really been getting when he was training on his own, he went, by the time we got around to his race in September, October, we were talking about breaking 90 minutes. So he went from two hours to That's you know, huge. breaking 90 minutes. He ran <laughs> in, his, in his race, he ran 129. Perfectly executed race because he was willing to listen, sort of set aside his ego and stubbornness. And because he had all the physical tools, the talent was there, but he had just never, one, kind of gotten the right process or two, been 
able to set his ego aside and stubbornness aside enough to kind of let the process work. Beautiful. Great example. So I heard a lot about willingness and the will is defines that gentleman's success. Awesome. Steve, what about you? Do you have an example similar, you know, kind of where somebody's ingredients really started shining? I do. Um, Again, one thing I'll, a little caveat I'll say is women are significantly easier to coach than men from the outset. For you. (laughs) No, for all. all? I think Chris would agree. Because the women are already in a position where they recognize their need and men to get to us by the time they've gotten to us, they've only... Begrud- many of them have only begrudgingly felt that so way. So from a gender perspective, need is another ingredient. Women seem to have it better and more present than men. Well, they're just more willing to ask for help, I think, is generally They're it. more willing to pay for it, too, in a sense. You know what I mean? And, and the threshold's not great at Rogue, but it but and by is, the way, that doesn't make them weak. That makes them strong. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> because, key. because the men have too much ego. I mean, this is a, a generalization. Obviously, there are people... <laughs> men that recognize they need help and are willing to set their ego aside. But generally, our programming is 65 to 70% women. Largely, we hypothesize because they're willing to set their ego aside, ask for help, and really use that as a, a form of strength. Fair enough. So Steve's talking. So my male, ex- yeah. my male I'm going to use another male example because I think that, that it's so easy to get crystal clear on them. I have an athlete that came to me about two, two and a half years ago, someone who Chris has heavily assistant coached in this in- endeavor. He, his, his work is um, exceedingly high level. He's a dermatologist at a high, high level. He's a really good doctor. And he came to us um, performing well, but not performing to what he was capable of. He had an idea of what he thought he was capable of. And we found, in much like Chris's case, uh, he's definitely better than that. And I knew that. And I think Chris knew that as well. This athlete was going to run really fast. And we're not even close to at, to this day, we're not close to even figuring out how fast he could run. But he brought excuses to the table that were really legitimate excuses. His wife travels a good bit. He's got a very high-level, busy work job. And his family, his children are super important to him. And he is, he is a absolute badass in every single thing he does. But yet he wanted to be a good runner. But he wasn't willing to bring the badass to his running mm. because he was going to give up that part of himself and it took about a year and a half maybe two years and i think the group environment the other people who worked with him then him recognizing in him uh, his own self the talent level that he had that he began to realize that selfishness was essential in a very small dose nice. in a, a small enough dose and then his other skill sets just came to bear. Okay. I mean, his ability to stay focused, his ability to go for a, a goal. I mean, if you've been through medical school, you've done all these things. He's in a great relationship with his wife, great relationship with his children. All the attributes, his natural raw ingredients were going to make him a stellar runner. And now he just finds the right balance and it changes and adjusts. But it was incredibly, in, incredibly motivating to see that change in him um, that was already there. So it was a wrong reading he currently had, but no one could have convinced him. If we had said in advance, you're not being selfish enough, he would have kicked us out the door and never given us an opportunity. And now I don't know that we've never talked about that, but... Um, I'm going to twist, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a wordsmithing and say instead of selfish, which I think we all understand what that implies, self-full. He yeah, understood. Good, he, can, mm-hmm. he can love his own journey and he can honor it and give it more time. Lovely. So let me wrap one, this up. Go ahead, though, Chris. You one go. thing I want to add to this conversation is that a lot of times people come to us and don't understand 
what their what ingredients they bring to the table. Bingo. And yeah. that's kind of what Steve was getting to yeah, with you that got example. The same way. But but there's l- so many times that's true. And whether it's whether it's somebody who's st- stubborn as, you know, kind of the examples we've given or people that just haven't seen it. You know, I have a lot of runners in my group because again, it's it's more beginner intermediate that come to us as new athletes, meaning they didn't do sports growing up. They got into running later in life and they found it as a way to, you know, you know to to move, a movement practice that we talked about offline. And it's it's uncovering things for them that they didn't think were possible. And so oftentimes they come to us sort of self-deprecating. Like, I can't do this or I'm not sure what I can do because I've never proven it to myself. And part of what our job is, is to unlock that. Yeah. You know, I had a, a woman in my group tell me, I never thought of myself as an athlete before joining this group. And now she thinks of herself as an athlete, which completely changes the perspective on what she can accomplish. So it's really interesting. So let me just wrap up ingredients. I mean, obviously we could go on for a whole day, but I would offer and, and say, I, I had a hunch that you might say things like, you know, great ability to have a, you know, a sinewy body or a great ability to have, you know, the, the, the wherewithal to get the right equipment. But what we heard instead is a lot more about the stuff inside, the stuff upstairs and um, motivations, willingness, being selfful, as you know, Steve pointed out, this fella really deserved to give a little bit more to himself. And when he did that, he started to hit the breakthroughs. So from ingredients, uh, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners may want to kind of explore that idea. But in, in coaching, I think the coach's unique ability to leverage the ingredients unknown to the coachee, to the person you're coaching, that's something very, that's a big gift. And you all have obviously both shared it. You guys got comments before we move on to the next section? I have one, and that's that... In my case, I guess it's maybe, you know, basically somewhere in the range of 25 years of coaching experience, I've come to realize that a lot of times I don't even know what they are either. Um, And I think at first that was something that I really felt self-conscious about. Um, But because I've sort of just taken on the role of intuitive coach, sort of. I just let it happen. But I do know in the case that I gave, the example that I gave. Let the ingredients come out. It was really obvious that this was a a high performer person. And yet his results were low, were were not as good as what he was capable of. Both what you could tell physiologically in the gifts he was given and his skill sets that he had developed. Sure. That I could tell pretty quickly. But I didn't know exactly how they would play out or how quickly they would go. So I had to stay flexible enough to say, well, is this royal ingredient a real ingredient in this individual or is this just sort of a natural tendency? And in this case, this person, it is a, it is a real ingredient that they've worked themselves rather than some natural tendency because some natural tendencies are really hard to break through. They're, they're, they're like limiters because... A person will not either be balanced enough to look at both sides of the issue or the multiple sides of the issue, or because it's so natural, they're not even conscious of it as a, as a, as a strength or a weakness, as the case may be. So I, I also think it's important for intuition to play through. As I watch Chris as his, in his coaching, it, it, to be a great coach, everyone must, you must become intuitive. And Chris's strengths now are lending far as much or more towards his intuitive nature, which is very different from my intuitive nature, but very much so. And now it's like, to me, I look at it and say, there's a great coach that they're able to allow the athlete to 
morph and change, and they'll be able to see what they need to see when they see see it without grabbing a hold of it and making it happen. That's some of the alchemy, and you're referencing intuition, which is a magic it's a magic word. So we're gonna focus on that more, obviously, in, in the magic mm-hmm. section. Chris, you have some thoughts. The only thing I will add before we go is that it's coach athlete for sure, and that partnership is important to understand what ingredients the athlete can bring to bear. But the group is so powerful as well. In this environment at Rogue, you can't talk about this stuff without mentioning that because iron sharpens iron in our worlds. And for the most part, Steve and I get little windows with our athletes. You know, it might be a little conversation at a water station or between intervals, but they're spending most of the time with their fellow runners and the ability for, you know, for them to look side by side and in a run and learn from each other is just as powerful, I think. Fantastic uh, s- summary sentence there, Chris. And I would offer, just to, to before we move on, the idea of the alchemy of coaching doesn't necessarily imply only coach and the person he or she is coaching. It is absolutely the community around that person getting coached. And the coach can be a facilitator and can be an inviter to just really going deep, like you all have already mentioned. So on this alchemy journey, we're now at the point where we're going to talk about science, something I think, from my view of, uh, as an outsider of what Rogue is up to, it's been the most fascinating thing to see, that your dedication and care to the human body and how it moves through space, how it does short runs, and how it, more importantly, oftentimes, uh, in your all's case, does long runs. How about, um, I, I anticipate, I, I spoke earlier with Chris about this. I understand you have more of a bent towards the science than Steve. I know both <laughs> of you are masters of it. I'd love to have Chris um, just kind of ponder, if you would, a little bit. When, when a coaching client first arrives in the rogue space, what are they thinking in terms of running as science, as something that can benefit from what we now know about the human body in space? Sure. I mean, most people come to us and they think, I'm going to go to Rogue to run fast. I need to run faster to get faster. But it's a lot more complicated than that, as we've talked about in this podcast. And for most people, as they join us, Steve will use the terminology that they join us as aerobic babies, meaning their aerobic system is infantile. But because again, most I apologize. <laughs> Can you just explain a little bit more? That's pretty funny. Maybe maybe Steve chime in real quick or well, something. I, I actually mean, usually use a less appropriate yeah. term, right, but I'll right. let Chris stay with his <laughs> analogy. Right. Well, right. Aerobic baby has like that. Yeah. Just well, I mean, you've used both, but yes, yes. depending on the context. I'm moving will, towards baby, so we'll just Steve, stay there. Steve Nobody will, puts baby in the Steve corner. We'll use All right. less politically correct terminology too, <laughs> but. Um, but the, the analogy is more or less the same, which is that they're new to the sport. And when you're new to a sport, you, your skills are... Do you, do are you include different. people that were self-training before they got to you? Is that... It depends. Okay, it depends. Okay. I mean, it depends. I mean, if they've been training for a couple of years by themselves, it's probably still likely that they're aerobic babies. But, you know, their history as an athlete de- matters. You know, I get some people that come to me and they played soccer growing up, and that obviously means they've got some aerobic development or swimmers oftentimes get into running later in life and obviously they've had some significant aerobic development so it varies but for the most part they come to us as aerobic infants infants which means their aerobic system is is new and it takes years to develop your aerobic system and i have to explain people frequently that what we're talking about isn't you know isn't like fake it's not like we're making up something or this isn't an analogy we're talking about it's like your aerobic system meaning your your mitochondria and your cells 
your blood vessels in your muscles, your blood's ability to carry oxygen, your lungs' ability to process oxygen, those things are infantile, meaning they're not very good when you start running. And you have to train your body and also allow it to evolve so that those things develop. So we're literally trying to train people so that their insides change. And most people don't really understand that. We're talking about adding mitochondria to their cells. We're, at, we're talking about adding blood vessels to their muscles, capillaries. We're talking about improving their blood's ability to carry oxygen and improve their lungs' ability to process oxygen into their bloodstream. We're talking about physical changes like you would have physical changes weightlifting. But you can't see them. And, and what's the practical? Them. How does Rogue convey that in a practical sort of process sense? Honestly, I don't think we really do very much. I think we, we it is so, it, the, the, the way that the human body works is a confusing thing to discuss. It's not a simple equation. It's, and, and so when we do try to talk about it, people get confused. So what we just say to them is, and, and everybody wants the sexy, right? They want the hard quality workouts. Um, and so we're, we, we have to, we're a business, right? Um, and so we have to go about providing them what they want. But what we do that's a little bit different is we're not afraid of letting them see what they don't have and, and allowing them to crash on the beach occasionally rather than moving their view, their, their boat right up yeah. onto the beach we, yeah because they have to fail a little bit to see and then they'll come back to us and say why 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 and we can tell them help pin that on the science maybe what what are we talking about scientifically what's happening what does fail mean scientifically for a runner for example well there's different layers of it but for the most part what happens is people come here as aerobic babies and one of two things happens. One, they go too fast, which means that they're not developing their aerobic system in the right way. They're, to use a car analogy, which I often use with my athletes, when you're building the aerobic system, you're expanding the, the engine, you're adding cylinders. When you're working fast, you're fine-tuning the engine. So for the most part, they show up and they're going too fast. So they're fine-tuning a really tiny engine and they're revving it up like, you know, they get a really revved up lawnmower engine. And what happens then is that either as a result they don't quite get the result that they want because they've got a tiny little revved up engine not the big v6 or v8 or you know 10 cylinder that we want or you know they develop fairly quickly because some training any training is going to cause some development in the aerobic system but their chassis isn't ready staying with the car analogy their chassis their neuromuscular system isn't ready for that development because aerobic system tends to develop faster than the neuromuscular side of things and they get hurt. And so if you don't do it the right way, then they crash on the beach, like Steve said, which then allows us to kind of come back in and say, all right, now let's figure out how to do this the right way. Right. If they were stubborn or if they knew they had a need, if they were perhaps what we said earlier, a gender difference, maybe a woman says, I, I know I have a need. I know I'm an aerobic baby. H how are you guiding them as a coach scientifically to that process? Why would she get a bigger, you know, why would she get so much more competence through the coaching process? Um, because we we put the we put the bit and bridle on them. We we back them off. We make them uh, the 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 physiological attributes that Chris is discussing take extended periods of time to develop. Um, and because no one can see it, 
um, race results are the key way to tell whether that that is achieved. And so what we do, what we do boots on the ground is we actually require people to set goal times and they think it's because we're trying to get their heads right, but it's more <laughs> to try to, to let them see that they're not physically capable necessarily of doing what they want. If Chris's, Chris's analogy, if his person that ran two out, that wanted to run under two hours had instead wanted to run under 90 minutes and wasn't ready, they would have, we would have seen them crash and burn in workouts before they crashed and burned in the race. And our coaches would then have been able to say, well, let's see what it is. And there it's a massaging them back yeah. from the goal that they have and try to work that through. But we get, we do make them, I mean, make them run a time trial within two to three weeks of any program that you're in rogue. Um, now the advanced level programs don't do that, but all of our other programs um, do that. We ask them to run a two mile time trial. It's always the same. All rogues hate doing it. It's painful. It's suffering. And, and, and it also forces many people who have been with us for a long time to sort of face up to the fact that they're not where they used to be or where they want to be. But it allows us to say, okay, use that time right now. And anybody in the science of, of marathoning would tell you a two-mile time trial is not indicative of where they're going to be. But we got to pin a tail. we got to pin a tail somewhere. we got to say they're in some kind of shape. So we use that for some really scientific physiological reasons why that distance is valuable rather than a mile or a three miles. There's a real science to why you pick three mi three, uh, two miles. And then they're able to take that time, plug it into a couple calculators, and then know when we say we're going to do 10K pace work, which is a real developing some physiological attributes, that they run at that pace. If they run half marathon pace, they run at that pace. Um, and so that's really where I think Rogue is a real difference in many other programming is that we, re we, we require them quickly to pay attention to the science of it. Um, and some of them don't, you know, some people in some groups, they really don't, but others, when they do, especially if they've got an ilking and, you know, an inclination going that direction, they got real, they've got some real things that they things that they can really work on. Got it. So, so what I got, and I'd like to hear from you too, Chris, but what I'm getting so far is this idea that although this science is very critical and y'all have, have really managed it and, and become adept at it over the, the years of dedication to coaching. The alchemy of coaching is you don't necessarily tell the, the coaching, the runner, you, you're basically showing them through the trend over time of how their time is, how their body's adjusting and how improvement is happening and that they're losing, they're, 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 they're getting into their teenage years of their aerobic system. One thing I've learned as a coach since I started coaching at Rogue in 2010 is that you can explain all of that to an athlete up front, but it's almost impossible for them to get it or really internalize it until they have practical application in front of them of living the process. And so, I, and I typically still do <laughs> try to explain it, but oftentimes kind of have to rehash it frequently because it's not intuitive i think that's the, ch the thing you know if you think about i want to run faster you think well i have to run fast all the time to run faster right and a lot of people show up and maybe they're running a three mile loop or four mile loop around their house and they think if i just run it a little bit faster every time i do that loop i'll get faster in the long term when the truth is you're probably not you're probably going to get hurt at some point you're probably going to reach a plateau because you're basically working the same part of your aerobic system all the time and all we do is work different parts at different times to give them the optimal aerobic development so this is great i want to stick with science because i hope you all have at least one or two other nuggets but the biggest nugget i just heard and i haven't heard this before is the development of the aerobic system is going to get you your pr ultimately 
It's that, the crucial piece. Nice. I'd like to hear some more science, y'all, just before I've, we move I've on. I've got to something it. for you. There's also another thing, and there's theoretical science and practical science. Rogue was built initially on a theoretical science platform, basically because I'm the guy who started it. Help I'm the explain guy who, what you mean by that, theoretical. So theoretical means what an ivory tower would tell you, what a book might tell you, what, the, what happens to the body physiologically to gain the physiological skill sets necessary to get better. And it sounds like over time you veered towards practical. Uh, no, we have, we have learned that the theoretical is purely that, and that this, the, we have to test it practically. The only difference between theory and practice <laughs> is right. And, and, and so sometimes we'll have really smart people come to us who are exercise physiologists. We actually had a fantastic coach here in Jeff Knight who was in, is so well-versed in the physiology of it. And I think if, in, initially his real learning curve was that, okay, I got to get out of what the book says and see what's actually happening in my athlete. And believe me, Rogue has gone through many, many years of, of, of guinea-pigging with athletes, typically our fastest athletes we've guinea pigged with. But, um, but the, the, the methods that we use, I think sometimes some of the training protocols that we've implemented at Rogue ha may not actually theoretically be what someone would consider optimal. But our experience is that the over, you know, basically 15 years of implementation, we're able to see that these things should be happening. Some things are, some things aren't. And why is that? You're dealing with an older population. You're dealing with folks who are not, you know, a lot of the testing that's done in exercise physiology is done on the fastest and the young and the fast. So let's hear some more science then. What, what, uh, what are some breakthroughs you all have had? Steve, you've had a lot of years dedicated to Rogue now. What are some of the scientific breakthroughs that really excite you that you share with your runners? So one thing that we've realized is that we were basing a lot of things on an attitude of progression through what we call macrocycles, so a periodization plan that was start with slower, move to faster. And we realized pretty quickly um, through watching the results that we were seeing at the world level at the fastest athletes that many of them were starting to do some faster paced running early in the cycle. And they were sort of setting up a little bit of a that physiologically what was happening was they were loading those neuromuscular that neuromuscular getting the neuromuscular recruitment early that they could touch base with later because when you build a cycle for an athlete scientifically to build over time sometimes they don't have the skill set later to go as fast as you want and so what will ha what would happen is that we would see athletes getting hurt late in the cycle trying to figure out why was that happening well we hadn't loaded them appropriately early on and we were watching wire athletes in the beginning of their cycle when they're supposed to be in the base phase doing 5k pace work and faster well science was telling us that we needed to load those get that neuromuscular recruitment stay with it just a little bit throughout the cycle and then hit it late and then we would get the result what so we you got to challenge the baby yes well we we needed to add new load we had to add loads and so we learned that Again, one of the founding principles of all of Rogue to start with was elite level training protocols implemented on the everyday runner. And we have never been led astray by that. It is still counterintuitive. People still fight with us about that. And we are unapologetic, absolutely 100% confident because we have spent 15 years seeing it play out. Yeah, great. What do the you got, Chris? The other thing I would add is that 
some of the workouts that we do, especially in the context of our long runs, physiologically, you would probably say they're not necessary. Or theoretically, as Steve was mentioning. But what we've learned is that you have to harden the mind and give, be, give people the opportunity to find their zone, so to speak, when it comes to marathon training. So we do a fair amount of marathon goal pace work as well as sometimes faster than that work within the context of long runs. We do less of it for our intermediate athlete and more for our more advanced athlete, but, but physiologically, it's probably not necessary. But we found that people aren't, weren't, wouldn't get the results if they didn't have it because they hadn't had the opportunity to practice it and harden their mind to it when they showed up on race day and weren't quite ready to kind of carry that through the whole race. So we're, so we're tapping into this idea of y'all have backed what you say. You're, you are supporting the rogue process with a lot of science, a lot of understanding, a lot of practical application of a theoretical start that you really wanted excellence in your runners. And continued tweaking. I mean, I think that that's something that we will never get credit for, but we do all the time. We, are, we, are, we bring in... We brought Jeff Knight in to, to test this physiologically, scientifically test the basic theories we had. And Jeff did test them, and he came out the other side saying, okay, we need to add this, and we need to add this. And we're always adjusting and always trying to say, let's stay on the cutting edge of what's going on scientifically, not necessarily what's happening, again, in the exercise physiology departments at all these major schools, but more what are the elite athletes doing because that's the practical – that we're seeing some practical application that came through that. And, you know, we, we badmouth Alberto Zalazar all the time, but one thing Alberto Zalazar is doing is putting a lot of people through – tests on treadmills and finding out what the body can do. And so then you see those race results played out by his athletes. And then all of us are going back and sort of, you know, reverse engineering what happened in that process. Some coaches give you more insight on what they actually physically do. Others, you have to try to extrapolate or interview or find ways to figure it out. But I do think that that's one thing that we, that to toot our own horn, we are not, people think we're getting people fast and it's just running them through a gauntlet and, you know, if you squeeze enough grapes, you're going to make wine, and that's, that's not what we're doing. Unfortunately, in order to get wine, you do have to squeeze grapes and things break, and that will happen. Um, I'm, I used to be so, so frustrated that we would hurt athletes, and then someone made me realize, well, how in the world are you ever going get to get somebody to perform at a high level if they're not stressing their body? And there's, always a, there's always a razor's edge that you're at there, and how do you step two steps back from getting them over that edge? Um, you know. At the end of the day, Kevin, science, the science piece is all about another th quote that Rogue uses all the time, which is, what does the race require? And physiologically, to allow a runner to run 20 miles and then do quality work that will simulate what happens over the last six miles of a marathon is, is completely, it's so dangerous. It's like, it's malpractice. And I see it happen. We see it happen in other programs where they do that. And so what we do is all the time, how do we get an athlete into the same physiological slash psychological space where they'll have to work through serious, serious, serious problems and through serious shit to get the result that they want? We do it from, these are two, I'll give you two workouts that are indicative of this. We do one workout where we make them run 
it, many coaches use this cycle where they go half marathon pace, 10K pace, half marathon pace, 10K pace, and they do it over a period of time early in a run, and then they get a little break, and then late in the run, they make them go back to marathon pace so that they've got beat up legs and they're tired and they're not, they're, they're feeling at 12 miles or 14 miles or 16 miles physiologically the way they would feel at 22 miles. And then we have them go to two to three to four miles that will be like what they're going to go through in a race. So that's one thing we do. Um, another thing we do that I do, but not many, we don't really have this as a rogue protocol, but my advanced level runners do it. We just did it two weeks ago. We do four times 400 meters, which is one lap around the track, which is a quarter of a mile, which I can't do the math. Chris probably can, but how much less of a marathon that is. We do four of them, right, which would equal a mile. So it's, and, and then I say, and at the end of that last four, they're doing it all out with full recovery. The workout is like total workout time, total workout distance with warm up and cool down and everything is probably five, six miles at most. And it all one mile. But that last lap, that lap final 400, they are physiologically dealing with extremely similar experiences that they'll be dealing with in a marathon. And there is no, there is no book telling you that or, or coach out there telling you that physiologically this is the reason you're doing it. But we're saying what will the race require? My athletes are going to have to deal with, with junk in the trunk, right? Legs that are heavy as lead. But, but that's not firing, calves that are shot. My brain is not processing. And if I lactate dump them as quick and as possibly as fast as I can, I'm going to get a simulated effect. That simulated effect hopefully will ha- allow them to feel confident when they're in stress. Because that's what happens. They're in stress, and they have to be confident when they're in stress. And that's so hard to teach people. There's a great tip-off uh, between the science, where, where I'd like us to close out, and into the, the magic. And, and you, both of your, I, I want to hear both of your views on, on the magic of this coaching alchemy. But what I'd like to just summarize where we've been. So we started out with the idea of what is success, and we heard some things about success is achievement. Success is this um, s- sort of moving target for each individual and finding out what that individual means by their running experience is super important to you all as coaches. Then we moved into the ingredients that make that happen, the why. Why are you doing this? That's where, Chris, you found the ingredients started to become manifest, even though the individual may not know it. Steve, you concurred. You know, they, they come with a lot of bullshit about running faster, but the ingredients that will get them there are a self-full appreciation that it's okay to give themselves more time in their schedule. So then we moved into this idea of science and it was fascinating for me. I haven't really heard some of that before, but that y'all keep it quiet because it's just developed over time. And I think the biggest thing I took from that is that you trend each of your runner's results. It's very important for you as the coach in the alchemy you're creating with your runner to trend their results over time. And you are very careful about where they are in their program. And that was fantastic to hear. But we're starting to get to something I do have a lot of experience with, is the, um, the, little, the little monkey upstairs. Hmm. The, the, the situation the runner faces where, and, and I, you know, from the runners that I know, I know one that, that faces a lot of demons up there that block the opportunity. So I'd like to just to kick off magic and start with you a little bit, Steve. How, how do you help your runners manage that little talker up in the head? What, what's going on there? Um, the, way, the way I do it um, is I beat them up. <laughs> Explain. I, there's, a, there's, a, there's an athlete that I, I, 
Chris is laughing. He's I didn't get it. By Steve. I didn't. I didn't get a chance to coach this athlete because I, when I coached at the University of Texas, I coached women, not men. But I was always jealous of certain athletes that I would see. Every coach looks at athletes that are super talented and have a matrix of of talent level, but they're missing one little component because most people at the super elite level are just missing one little thing. And this one athlete, I knew exactly what it was. And what it was was I needed he needed to get put in a cage and he needed to get poked with a stick. Because the rage wouldn't come out appropriately. He was a rageful person. He got into lots of fights. He did really poorly, be, poorly behaved, but it wouldn't come out when it needed to. And the coach that he had at the time is a master of psychological manipulation and really got a lot out of this athlete. But I always thought there was just one more thing that he could do. And so I don't do this to every single athlete, but I do think frequently what I try to do is to put them into significant distress physiologically or psychologically to see how they'll respond. And then that allows you to start to sort of push their strengths and weakness matrix. And I think this is some of the biggest part of the magic is knowing the strengths and weaknesses that your athletes have, working the strengths early, work, I mean, working the weaknesses early, working the strengths late. So early on, because we usually plan things out in six months or four month windows because we're talking about marathoners. And so we try to work psychologically. I try to work with what they're good what they're bad at early because they're way more willing to do it this is why i also tell people i need 18 months i mean when i when i start working with an athlete every single one of them here is if you're not going to give me 18 months you're not going to get the full benefit not one because we know physiologically they won't get the benefit but number two i won't know how to poke them and in order to poke them with a stick appropriately i have to because that's very few people male or female very few people respond to the carrot the, the stick is way more important than the carrot when you are trying to do a physiological task because the brain gets in the way, it jumps in the way, and if you can poke the bear, if you can stick them a little bit, they'll go, oh, oh, whoa, what just, what just happened? And you get a change in response. So this is a little different what you're saying than what they say, what is fairly standard in the field of you know, performance in, in the workplace, which is play to your strengths. That's a pretty common reference. And what you're indicating here, Steve, is part of the magic is poking the weakness early on, just really delving then, into is it real or not and then play to the strength because you you will not have i say healthy happy strong i mean you have got to be happy you've got to get a good starting line experience which is our main goal as coaches to get them on the starting line ready to roll you want to go back to their strengths later on but you have to have shown them that they have the ability to overcome their weaknesses because they're the athletes are always human beings do not want to st- test the test the edges even those athletes who are skillful at testing edges still don't want to do it and that's the coach's role honestly in my view is to push find the blind spots make sure they see where they're at in their blind spots push it push it push it and then go back to what they're really really good at and then you're able then the nice thing about our sport is that it really does lend itself to that in a lot of ways it's like just naturally what how the periodization science of our sport really works. We, we don't make them run really, really fast at the end of a cycle. We actually try to make them run slower and a little bit longer, and we freshen them up right at the end. So it kind of allows us to kind of play through that as a, as a narrative, if you will, in their, in their short cycle of a marathon prep or in the longer cycle of a career arc. But that's what I do. I, I really try to push and prod and poke to appropriately get a response that allows me to do my job better because stress is a great indicator of how people will react in the world.
Great. So you wield your magic, Steve, with the idea of a stick is greater than a carrot and that it deserves to be poked in the right place at the right time. And culturally, we have a really I, I have a I mean, I think that if I were raising a child, I'd be thrown in jail. Right. But we do have a sort of a, an understanding that, you know, the old nobody Vince, puts the aerobic baby right, in the right, corner. No. The Vince, the Vince Lombardi idea of tough love and tough, you know, the, about that idea that it's going to be hard and going to be tough. There's there's still a sub substantial amount of the of the American public at least that is expecting that from a coach and they want that and I think that in some ways that's where Chris is challenged more than I am because I don't think it's as natural for him to to go there with his athletes he does in a different way I go there quickly by just saying hey I've got an excuse coaches are always supposed to push their athlete to the edge um you know and so I just do it because it so much more quickly shows what the athlete's capable of and what they're sure. going to be able to do. Well, let's hear from Chris. Chris, well, what do you got on this? I definitely do it differently. Yeah. <laughs> let's hear your magic. And it's ironic that I'm coached by Steve. But for me, my magic is not, in, is not magical. There's a famous quote from the book Running with the Buffaloes, which we talked about on our podcast with Kara and Adam Goucher, from Mark Wetmore, who's the coach at University of Colorado, distance coach, famous in our sport. For coaching Olympians down to collegiate national champions. And he said in that book, there are no miracles in running. There might be miracles in other sports, but there aren't in running. And his magic with his athletes was being able to tell them what they could run in a given meet to the point where they believed it because he was right. And so for me, it's, it's more along those lines where my spidey sense as a coach is having an ability to to know where an athlete is and what they can accomplish, telling them they can accomplish it, and then making it so matter-of-fact that it's going to happen that they don't have a chance to not believe me, and then they just go do it. So you're building the structure around right. imp- showing them after workout, after workout, after workout, that what they think, what exactly. you think they're capable so of. So my process to. is almost like, like where Steve might talk about a hard workout and kind of throw it in your face and build it up and make you almost scared of it to draw out, you know, some response, I would do the opposite and be like, look, this is no big deal. I wouldn't give you anything more than you can't handle. Just go do it to the point where they do it and then they believe. But what happens with the listener that's not getting there, that you're applying the magic and the magic isn't working? Well, that's harder because you know, sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes you get people that are afraid of pain. We talked about it on our last podcast, episode 32, where we talked about the fear of pain. And some people, especially new athletes to the sport, don't really understand what hurting should feel like. I've had people ask me, what should I, like, how hard should it be? And, and so there you have to just lead them more slowly through the process. It's like, give them a little bit to push them into the dark spaces. So that they learn they didn't die and then do it again. So it's just a longer process in, in that sense for me. Steve would probably just throw him in the deep end. I, I do have a tendency to do that, but what Chris what people don't realize is as soon as I throw them in the deep end, they don't drown. They many of them many of them start to swim and then they think they did it and I'm the asshole, right? And um and at the end of the day, it doesn't work that all the way, but that's one of the reasons why I kind of sort of really test my athletes before I throw that method at them necessarily. Um, one of the things that you just said, we talk about it all the time in running is when they hit a plateau, like why is this not happening, right? Why is that, why are we not seeing a result? 
you're friends with an athlete that runs in Rogue who is currently in a long plateau phase, who I've spoken to one or two times about psychological pieces, and she's she nods her head and she says, I hear you, and yes, I she gleans some things from those conversations. In my view at this point in time, um, she, and she's tr- she, you know, she ran with Rogue. She's run with Rogue for a long time. She took a little break where she didn't run with Rogue, then she came back to Rogue. Sometimes it's just a plateau. Sometimes it's just... It's just time. And one of the other magic things is this is amazing is the fits, the science of it always works. If an <laughs> Say a- what you mean by that. If the athlete will give it time, they will aerobically develop. If they aerobically develop, they will move beyond the plateau at which they're at. Um, and so, you know, they just are in a many times they're in a window of, well, they, they all think they're in a mental funk. But what they're in is just their body's going to take. It's just it's just. They got really good for a window of time or, or they were behind the eight ball pretty far and they were more of an aerobic um, infant than they knew or there's a lot of different reasons why those things happen. And no matter, and again, so, so my analogy of poking the bear, poking him with the stick, sometimes you're just making him mad and there's nothing else to do. And, and I think Chris and I both know the time when that's happening. And I'll go back and say, in my own mind, I'll say that's a plateau. Now I'll tell you, the athlete, they don't want to hear that. That's the last thing they want to hear. They think you're lying to them. They think that they number one, they think you're lying to them because that's not what they've seen played out with the other athletes. So if they started, so five runners could start together there and they could all end up, they could all start at four hours and they could all end up at three hours for a marathon, but they're all going to reach that three hour time at a different time. Um, and so everyone thinks that they're a science experiment that's just going to work out just like just point A will happen in this amount of time, point B will happen in this amount of time, and that does not happen. It happens when the, when the body decides to make it happen, or when the universe decides, if you want to go magic, which I do sometimes say, but I do know that that's physiological. It just takes time sometimes, and that, the, some of those things are physiological. In my, in my experience, the vast majority of them are psychological, but if an athlete has been with Rogue or an inner training program for two years or three years, and they quit improving... It is almost always going to be that they're just in a plateau phase that just takes time to work through. Sure. The question I want to get to here, though, is because this is where I think Steve and I, I wouldn't say disagree, that's a strong word, but where I question Steve on the question of magic is if an athlete goes into a race and they're prepared to run X physically, you know, they've done the training that proves they can run X. He is a coach that believes that there's, there's a Y somewhere above X or faster than X that they can get to if they tap into magic, if they kind of transcend, if they have the ability to transcend what, you know, what paper or math or science would tell them they could do. And there's a gap in there. <laughs> and so that's the magic he often talks about, which I don't necessarily believe in um, as Why a coach. Why not? Because like I said, my approach is you train for what you can do. And so you should go into a race knowing exactly what you can accomplish. Isn't there now, a risky, isn't there a risky, now there's risk. that's just safe, right? I mean, if I just train for what I can do, isn't that safe? Um, no, because it's different. Because any marathon, so any marathon you run, let's say you know, you're trying to run three hours and 30 minutes. And that's a, a peak of what you can accomplish there's risk associated with that. I always tell my athletes, like the faster you try to go, the more risk you're taking on with the marathon and less likely that you're going to be able to accomplish it. And so you have to just deal with more risk. So to me, it's more of a risk 
risk-reward equation, you know, the harder you press that edge, the more risk that you don't get it or that something comes up that, that, but it doesn't mean you can't accomplish it physically. It doesn't mean you're not physically trained for it. But I think Steve's perspective is slightly different, which is that, you know, there's something above risk. (laughs) There's something that transcends that. And look, he's my coach. So at some level, I understand. Well, let's hear from Steve. What does he think that is? We do think about that differently. What is that if above I hadn't, risk? If Steve? I hadn't seen, so I came at, I think I'd, oh, I've always been partial and wanted to believe in this difference as Chris's analogy, X is the level at which the athlete trains for. And I'll ask an athlete sometimes to train at that level and then say, but I think we can get Y. Now, frequently that almost always, I allow my athlete to bring that to me. Like I rarely will say you should go to Y that, that we should, here's the, here's where you're at. And we should expect better than that. I only, I have to have complicity. You're not telling them you're asking them. No, they need to bring it to me in order that they want to get there. And what I'll tell them, Chris has heard me say this, and I think he thinks this is where maybe I'm being a bit irresponsible as a coach. I'll say, if you can think, if you can dream it, you can make it happen. You're capable of nearly anything. And so I I think I grew up with a basic idea that a a desire to believe as I lost my faith, uh, my, my spiritual faith, I didn't quit. I didn't lose my belief that the human was capable of more than they knew they were capable of. Um, Maybe it's too many superhero stories. Maybe it's too much believing in the hero. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but I believe that. And then I had the opportunity to mentor with a coach at the University of Texas in Bev Kearney who operated absolutely along the lines of she created trading protocols in place exactly to get them to X and then asked them to go to Y. And I would see now her sport, her, her sport is track and field just like ours. But her event was the 100-meter dash and the 200-meter dash or the long jump. And I'm sure I'm already, already anticipating Chris's arguments is that the difference between a race that takes 10 to 11 seconds and what takes two to three hours or four hours to accomplish, that's a lot of time. That She was asking them to transcend based on a sort of flight, fight or flight kind of response. But I still want to believe, and I don't have to be right, but I still want to believe. And I've had um, a handful maybe two handfuls of, ex- of, of absolute reinforcement that that is capable of happening. Um, and I just guess I feel like tr- I said in the initial, what's my success transcendence? I'm looking for that because I do think every human being is built that way. They're ready for that, even the most, even the most logically minded individual. And I think maybe Chris is still attracted to me as a coach of helping him get to the place that he needs to get to because while he doesn't trust it, He's happy for a little magic to come his way if should it happen. <laughs> Miracles and so, can happen. So, so, but I don't know that for a fact. But I just know if he continues to work with me, he knows I'm going to still be in that space. Now, again, I only break that, bring that out to the athletes who want that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, thank you. I'm going to um, ask you both if you have examples of where one of your runners felt the magic. I'd like to hear, as a coach, your all's experience of observing the magic even for you, Chris, maybe you could start if you have, well, let's go with Steve. But I'd like to know when a, when a runner's really struggling, pushing their aerobic infant has moved on to teenager, possibly even mature adult. They've really got the aerobic system. They've worked with you for years. 
is there still magic, and when there is, what is it? What well, is it? I mean, Chris and I know probably know what I'm going to say. I'm going to use Nora Colgan as an example. I mean, this is a person who Chris will say, oh, but we all knew she could qualify for the Olympic trials, but I don't think Nora thought she could qualify. I think Nora thought she should qualify for the Olympic trials. Would you say that's correct? Accurate? Right. And so she knew she had a latent capability, but she didn't believe that she could get there. Um, and this is how magic works. She didn't reach the goal time. She didn't meet the time, Kevin. She didn't get there. She missed it by a minute. She kept fighting all the way to the end. This is the thing. She believed that she could get the time, but she didn't know if she, she, she we, we had brainwashed her to the point. We'd got her from X. She knew she could do X, which was 247, but she didn't know if she could run 245, but she believed. She trusted. She went for it. She went after it. She missed it. She ran 245 high. Well, guess what? The universe conspired. <laughs> they changed the time. They moved it 50 seconds back, to a minute back. So she makes it, gets the qualifier. Yeah, okay, a, a, a skeptic can go through and say, here, there's this reason, there's this reason, there's this reason, there's this reason. You know what? I told the girl that she could qualify for the Olympic trials, and I got her the Olympic trials. <laughs> Game over. Game, match, Magic set. found. <laughs> well, that, I don't think that was magic, though. We all knew she could run that. <laughs> now, there may have been magic in getting her to believe it, <laughs> but physically, we knew she could do it. I think the best example in your history of magic might be Mark Bergman running low 230s. I mean, that to me probably transcends any performance I've seen from a team rogue athlete. But he, okay, Mark Bergman, so th in this case, this is an athlete who had been working with an incredibly skilled, very talented coach in John Shrupp, who's been on this, in, on, on this podcast with us. And, and, and Mark had bought in hook, line, and sinker to the process with which his coach got him ready. He got a new coach, and this happens so often. When an athlete moves from one training system and one sort of methodology, and John and I's methodologies are similar in terms of the right workouts that we write, but we just change them just a bit. So I had an athlete that had been well-trained by another coach who I highly respected, so I didn't get in the way of that at all. And the athlete came to me looking for a little magic sauce, like a little shake and bake. And so, and he actually brought to me the goal time that he wanted to run. And all I said to him, the thing that actually made that happen was he, he thought he came to me with a race plan that he thought for sure I was going to say would not I would not allow. And in that meeting that we met at the Starbucks at the Starbucks on twenty two twenty two in Mopac, I know exactly when we met. And he, I I didn't realize this, but I thought he was a hundred percent sure I was going to say no, Mark. I don't want to follow this plan because I was known as a coach who wanted athletes to negative split no matter what. He came with a plan which was a site which was with a very slight neg very slight positive split. But knowing that the positive split would come and the pain would be so great. So all I did was say yes, two things I did. Number one, I said yes to the plan, which I think shocked him, totally shocked him. And number two, I said, don't fuck with my win-loss record. <laughs> so you made this plan and I'm agreeing to it, but this is your plan and I believe in you and I believe in, and I also told him, I don't know that anybody else could do this but you. I said that in all honesty. It wasn't, it wasn't mind trickery. But it was, I believe that you can do it. And he says, he will tell you that over the last three to four miles of suffering, he said, don't lose, don't lose. You got to win, you got to win. And I, I don't know, all I did, all I think there what happened was he got the benefit of the old coach who did all the things right. He just needed a little bit of, a little bit of difference. And, you know, you, you, you change the, from night to day, you change the paint on, the, on a wall and all of a sudden the room looks different. I think a little bit that that's what happened. And, um, you know, it, it's... Is that I can see where someone would say that's not magic, but it, it, it's what I, I don't really believe that. I just think we're small minded. 
I think we're smaller. We view ourselves smaller. And those folk, this, those folks who want to go down the road of life, thinking that X one plus one equals two, are welcome to do that. But I'm open and willing to believe that one plus one can equal two, three, or any other number set. My skill set to get them to make to 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 go outside the realm of of what's what they're capable of is limited to what I can do with what they bring to me. I think that case of Mark Bergman was a magic mix of a of a lot of different little things that happened for that particular athlete to get there. Sure. Hey, Chris, you've been kind of quiet. Do you have any thoughts well, on magic before we move on? I think first of all that Steve to me as a coach is magic at knowing exactly the right thing to say, not only in one-on-ones, but also in any moment you see him in a workout or a race. There's nobody better, in my opinion, at saying the three words you need to hear at mile 11 of a half marathon or mile 20 of a, of a marathon. Because as a coach, those are hard moments when you're getting literally no time with them. It's hard to know what to say besides good job, keep pushing, whatever. And you'll never hear that from Steve. It, he always somehow d- dives into your soul <laughs> and figures out exactly the three words you need in the moment, which are going to be different every single time. And that taps into something in you that allows you to find a new place, perhaps. And so, in a sense, he's magical with that. He's got a skill set there that I envy as a coach. I think it's funny listening to this because I think of myself as an analytical-minded person being coached by someone who's more intuitive and philosophical. It's really, it's really fascinating, but maybe he gives me that side that, I, that I'm looking for that I don't get for myself. For me, though, as I think about my athletes' results, I can't think of a time when I wasn't, when I was surprised by a result. You know, I always have a sense. I have a really good sense. That's one of, like I said, one of my spidey senses as a coach is, is being able to know what someone can accomplish. And sometimes I'll tell them what they can accomplish and they don't believe me. And then we have to go through a process of getting them to believe and proving it to them. But I can't say I've ever had a result where I was surprised. Now, I think sometimes athletes have run faster than I thought they might. But then I can look back at the training and say, okay, yeah, it was in there. And we had just been maybe a little conservative with our plan. But again, I lean towards, you know, you train for what you can accomplish on race day. <laughs> Chris, <laughs> staying true to his scientific <laughs> upbringing. All right. So uh, I think where we are now, uh, we're about to get to the next and last section. I'd like to summarize the whole thing so far. So um, thank you all so much. The insights here are awesome. I hope for those uh, listening as well. We, we talked about ingredients early on after we understood what success is from the perspective of the coach. The alchemy is taking those ingredients, honing them, sharpening them, knowing that your runners can achieve, can transcend, should they choose to do so. The alchemy is a long journey, though, because it's a long race, a marathon. And your training programs, which I'm well aware of, are complicated and there is a big commitment that takes place. And I wonder so often, this is my biggest wonder as a non-runner, why on earth are these crazy folks doing this? What is driving them? And I think, so after we've got the science, which was wonderful, it's clear y'all are professionals at what you are doing for your runners. And after the magic, which is something that's just so hard to encapsulate um, here, but I know that you both have it on 
despite your protestations, Chris. I know you both have it out there in the world. But let's now just kind of cut to the chase and say, why, the big why, like what is driving these folks? What is the result? We're in the results section. Just off the cuff, what on earth are runners doing? I think most people at some level deep inside are trying to learn about themselves. There might be a time associated a time goal or a race distance accomplishment they're trying to achieve. But I think all of us that stay in this game very long are trying, we're in a process of self-discovery. Talking about the transcendence, you know, of the person that Steve was referencing. That's, that's what we're, I think we're all trying to achieve is digging into the dark parts of ourselves that only running can provide a crucible for. And then learning and dealing with the messy stuff as you as you kind of go through the process of sharpening and crushing and burning sometimes the fire the fires that we go through you you learn about yourself and then as a result become a better version of yourself kind of transcend and so I think that's deep down what we're all seeking it comes in the form of time goals it comes in the form of Boston qualifying goals it comes in the form of running a distance like the marathon that's crazy on the surface. But I think that's all what we're looking for. Great. What about you, Steve? That's the human condition. I mean, we're, we're all religion is based around the fact that somebody needs something. And I think everyone needs something. Um, and there are those who find that something through pushing the pleasure principle and there's others that are just just clicked the way that their the way their synapses work the way their internal chemistry functions is they want to, they they need to suffer and i think we see the sufferers um and we recruit the sufferers in every way i do think there's another piece here that chris alluded to right from the very beginning which is so important and we haven't and it, i know kevin you know this for sure because this is the thing that uh, that attracted that attracts you to rogue the most is that we also have a community around it. So we, we embrace the suck. Um, that's kind of a gotten to a point to be an almost a cheese ball sort of cliche. I think we've actually made it a cliche. But we, and, and we find those out there who also want to embrace the suck. And, and we tell them they have a home. And we tell them that they're going to walk this journey by themselves and alone. But there will be others with them. Because I think one of the, one of my great friends and mentors as a coach, um, Ricardo Troncoso, who uh, his wife coaches with Rogue, and um, he, at the time I was running with him, I was very uninspired as an athlete. I was about to be done with my, collegiate, my, my post-collegiate running career. I was jaded and finished. Um, and he said to me, basically, that the human, that humans, people just don't, People don't want to find an answer to a question. They want they want to find an answer to a question. They don't want to ask the question. <laughs> um, and so, and because they don't want to ask the question, they 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 he, they wander around un uninformed, uh, uh, just lost. And that my nickname to he and his to to him at the time was little boy lost, because he kept saying, "You want answers. You want answers. You want answers. You don't want to ask a question." And I think that that's what happens at Rogue. 
that people come in asking a personal question about who they are and what they're all about. They don't, they know that the others around them are also asking that question. They trust that that's happening. And then they find solidarity and community in, in the group while still walking that individual path. And I think that many of them don't recognize that yet. They don't see that. But those who do, um, then they're hooked forever because they just know that it's nothing special. Like, I think that's one of the things we, we use, some of the fancy sauce, and we use stuff to try to make it seem special because there's a marketing play in all of that. You know, there's a game to it. But at the end of the day, we know that what we're selling um, is really just self, as Chris said, self exploration, asking the question, being willing to ask the question, and um, and then knowing that there's a whole bunch of other people around you asking that same question. And the results that you're asking for, that's why I say transcendence. That the people walk away. With, sometimes, occasionally, we get an answer. Um, more often than not, it's just more questions um, or the same question repeated at at you know added ad nauseum, I don't know. I really don't have an answer for that. I don't have a way to say it's worthwhile. I just know that the people who do it, who find it worthwhile, keep coming back for more. Fantastic. Chris? To me, the group is where the magic is, however you want to define it. But in my own experience as a runner, when you're following in line with four, five, six, seven, eight athletes all doing the, a similar workout, trying to accomplish something together, maybe we're together in a race as I've been with some of my teammates before. And you get into that flow with a group. Whether you're pushing hard or whether you're just running easy and having a good time and talking to each other, you get into that flow where time stops and, and, and everything becomes effortless in a way that you've never felt on your own. That's where the magic is. And I think that's often what we give people is the context and community to find that magic with others because there is something about I do believe in chemistry across humans that you can't necessarily see isn't that magic (laughs) (laughs) we're getting we're getting really deep into that like backing up on my (laughs) my perspectives here but, but there is there is something to that and that's that to me as an athlete is what I I'm looking for often now more than anything else, but I think is also what we give people that allows them to find places in themselves that they didn't think were possible when they showed up. Flow state optimization. Rogue has gotten really good at that. I do think, though, that we do have two different kinds of people now that I said that I, we've got the sufferers, right? Those are chasing the pain, chasing the suffering. Um, and then we have the flow state, the people who are chasing the flow state. I always feel sympathy and empathy for the flow state chasers because it's so much easier to find pain and suffering and so much harder to find that flow state. And those who are addicted to that flow state, they have to wait long and hard to get there. And I think, you know, when we do see plateaus, sometimes those folks who are in that long plateau section are are having an expectation of the universe or an experience, life experience that's just not ready for them yet. And they just got to wait. And because but they don't want to do that because they're so addicted to the flow state. So much easier for those folks who are just addicted to pain and suffering and know they'll come out some other way on the other side. And I think we see both of them at Rogue. I've got a question for you, Kevin, as we, as we close as we this close up out. and wrap it up. And first of all, I'll say to preface it, while I am analytical, an analytical person who believes in the science, 
leading to results. I am agnostic on the question of magic. And I can argue one side, but I'm open-minded to it. And I think that belief is important whether or not, you know, it's real. But going to you, outsider looking in, lawyer mind, logical thinker, do you believe in magic in the context of Rogue? Yeah, 100%. I mean, thank you. Great way to end our conversation. The magic, absolutely, 100%, in my view, has been that the challenges you all take on willingly and with each other are profound. They each person that I've gotten the privilege to know has transcended their start point when they began with Rogue to when I find them somewhere along the journey of Rogue. And I've really been impressed in the magic of sticking with Rogue and sticking with a concept and continuing to develop self and notions of the suffering, sometimes notion of the euphoria of finding the zone but always continuing, always continuing to come back. Y'all are such magic practitioners to keep people coming back, to keep vibrant, to keep current. And so, yeah, I would say as an outsider looking in, you know, it's, it's hard if you're not a sufferer to process it, but the <laughs> magic that Rogue does, that's super clear to understand. So thank you all so much for sharing some of your thoughts today. Yeah, this was good. And hopefully the listeners picked up a thing or two in this journey of kind of understanding the alchemy of coaching, the alchemy of running. We really appreciate everybody letting us do this sometimes, just kind of going off. <laughs> so I want to, again, I want to thank Kevin. He's been a, a friend, a great friend and a, and a great mentor. Um, and thank you for being willing to come. I knew you would a willing, willing <laughs> participant, but I thank you for being in a place that allows us to sort of, Chris and I have begun to realize more and more that this podcast uh, is about um, following what, what we feel is important to the runners that we work with. And I think we're in a bit of shock that what we feel is sort of got its finger on the pulse of what's happening out there. So one thing I want to give a shout out to a, another podcast. I recently was a guest, and I know, Chris, you were a guest as well, on a podcast called The Start Sign, an opportunity to talk um, to Brandy and Wendy on their um, podcast. Their nascent podcast was pretty new at this. I think yep. they're on, I think I was their fourth or fifth guest. Um, I, I A huge shout out to those ladies and if you, those of you who do listen to our podcast, you might find similar things of interest that we talk about over there. They're both rogues running the New York City Marathon. Um, I, I, I had a great time talking with them. They've got on tap more great guests. So shout out to the start sign. Um, maybe Chris can put that in the show notes. And um, we'd love to send them. We'd like to, I would love to see them continue to do more and more podcasting and get more great guests. Yeah, it's a good perspective from the runners in our, in our groups and not just from us. Well, thank you all for listening. This is episode 33. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Rogue Running. Until next time, talk to you then.